Hi folks, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. My name is Jeremy McCandless and you are very, very welcome. This project is to work through the whole Bible, Lord willing, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Today you're joining me, we're well into the book of Exodus and we're at our third day witnessing these momentous events, very famous Bible story known throughout Bible history, being portrayed many times in film and on television. That is Moses before Pharaoh warning him of the 10th plague. So if you are here for the very first time, can I suggest that you click on the subscribe button wherever it is you currently get your podcast from, and that way you'll never miss another single episode. That way you can too make the decision along with thousands of other people to make the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life. So with that said, I'm going to drop back now into the main text of Exodus. We're going to be looking at three more plagues, covering the text from Exodus 9.13 to 10.29. But do hang on at the end and I'll update you with a few things. Bye-bye for now. Okay, friends, here we are, day three, Moses is standing before Pharaoh, and as we've been working through this part of the story, and Moses and these encounters with Pharaoh, on more than one occasion, I've asked as we've gone along, what can we actually learn from this that we can apply for us today? And I think one of the perspectives I'm drawing out of it in terms of what we can get some utility out of it in our everyday situation is how can we use it as a model of reaching stubborn, hard-hearted unbelievers? You know, the sort of people that you're aware of, been witnessed to and witnessed to over and over again, who've exposed to the rich heritage of the Bible uh, and an authentic representation of it, and yet still they seem to fail to respond. Well, it seems to me that there's a case just like this in the Bible, perhaps the classic case of all cases of the stubborn unbeliever, and that is the example of Pharaoh. Here we have before, yes, he's a pharaoh, yes, he's a king, but at heart he's a stubborn man who, when Moses goes to him and repeatedly warns him to turn from his ways, he continually refuses to do what the Lord asks him to do. And I can almost imagine Moses getting to the point where he says, what more can I possibly do than what I've done to try and reach this man? Well, let's see where we are. Let's see what Moses did next. And we're picking up the text in Exodus chapter 9, and I'll begin reading from 13 to 19 initially, which in my Bible is entitled, The Plague of Hail. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go, so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you, and against your officials, and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could stretch out my hands and strike you and your people with a plague that could have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, At this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen in Egypt. 
from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything in from the field to find a place of shelter, because the hail will fall on every person and animal, and any animal that has not been brought in and is still in the field, they will die. Those officials of a pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside, but those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Okay, so this is the warning phase of this uh, plague. And as you will recall thus far in this book of Exodus, we've seen Moses and Aaron make six trips to stand before Pharaoh. And in each of those trips, they have the same message, which is let my people go. And when Pharaoh refuses to do that, then there's a corresponding plague falls. What is happening in the opening part of this passage I've just read is that the seventh plague, well, is in effect just at this point being prophesied. This is going to be the seven of what will turn out to be 10 plagues consisting of three sets of three that make up the first nine and then of course the final tenth plague which is the Passover. So this is the third set of these three plagues. It's our third day we've been looking at this and here from verse 13 down through to verse 19 which I just read we're simply being told what Moses told the Lord and he was told by God to get up and go stand before Pharaoh and then he was told what he should say to him. Now let me point out that as we've gone further into this, we've come to recognise that these plagues belong in three groups of three. The initial plagues, nine plagues, belong in three groups of three. Because in each of these three sets of plagues, the first plague in each set of three begins with the phrase, in the morning. And that's what's said before the first plague. It was said before the fourth plague. We discovered that yesterday. And then today we see it being said before the seventh plague. And that's one of the clues that what we have here is Moses deliberately recording these events after the events and placing them in three sets for us. At any rate, the Lord says, go in the morning and talk to Pharaoh and say again to him, let my people go so that they may serve me. And tell him again, I'm going to send these plagues. And if you don't let them go, well, in other words, he's saying, if you don't let them go, the Lord says there's going to be trouble. And to put it in the vernacular, he's effectively saying, you know, I know there's a lot of gods in Egypt, but I just want to remind you and the children of Israel that there is no God like me. Simply, if I just stretched out my hand, then you and your people could be wiped from the face of the earth. But then it says at verse 16, it says that, yes, that's who he is. That's the power he has. But it tells us the reason that he's doing this. And he says, yet I do this for this purpose. I have raised you up that I may show my power through you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. So he's actually using Pharaoh to show his power through him and through this situation. So he has in fact been implying that I could destroy you, but I don't want to destroy you. And in fact, you could suggest that he's allowed Pharaoh to be elevated to this position of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, in the very first place. And the reason that those events happened was so that it would reach the point by what he is doing here through these incredible events that his name will be declared in all the earth. And we're still talking about them today. So that's definitely what in effect happened. But this is the point where he now gets specific about the next plague. And this one's heal. But a really destructive heal, maybe not like something you or I have ever experienced, one that will even kill people and livestock if it is not gathered in in time. The seventh plague 
is called the Plague of Hailstone. And again, this is a deeply significant plague and has meaning and resonates with the Egyptian people just like all the others did. As I mentioned several times already that there were many, many gods in Egypt and the plagues were judgment against these gods. And by sending hail, God was in effect pronouncing judgment on several other of the Egyptian gods. You see, there was a great god of the sky and there was a god of crops and there was a god they specifically prayed to and sacrificed to and did rituals to in order to try and prevent storms. So by letting this destructive hailstorm fall, it shows that the God, of, the one God Most High, the God of the children of Israel, had power over all these other so-called gods. Now he says, I could have destroyed you, but I chose not to. Instead, I'm going to send a hailstone, but be warned it's so severe it could kill, destroy all the animals and any other people who are out when it comes. However, I'm giving you a warning to get some protection and get everyone inside. So it seems to me that what's going on here again is the Lord pronouncing judgment, but with a degree of compassion. He's predicting the judgment, but offering a way out, compassion at the same time. One commentator I read about this said, and I quote, The fact that God was judging Pharaoh does not mean that he was not merciful at the same time, because the Lord could have destroyed Pharaoh and his people at any moment. And indeed, this preliminary text describing the coming plague very much draws attention to that. So in a sense, he served notice, so to speak. He's warned the Egyptian to go inside and gather their livestock as quickly as possible so that some might be spared in the hailstorm. As an aside, I also read that in Egypt, cattle were usually outdoored from January through to April before the summer heat came in. So that suggests that this plague and the fact they were outside took place somewhere between January and April, which I thought was interesting. And as one of those reasons I said in the earlier passage when we first started looking at these, which is why experts have come to place these plagues as occurring over a eight or nine month period. Anyway, what's also really interesting is it seems that in certain instances, some of the people, the Egyptian people, exhibited fear of the Lord, as it's described, and they secured their livestock and barns, while in other cases, it says there were others who did not fear the Lord. Now, interesting for me is this use of the term fear of the Lord here. It's frequently mentioned in the Old Testament, and when used, usually encompasses a sense of belief in God. If one fears the Lord, it kind of does imply at some level some belief in him. Now I've pondered this idea and thought about it for a while, and I can't be dogmatic about this, but I do wonder if any of these Egyptians described here actually really feared the Lord in the sense that they were truly submitting to God. I've read extensively on it, and I I would have to call as being uncertain, because they could have or they could very likely have just chosen to believe in the God of the children of Israel alongside the multiple gods that they already had. But for me, the possibility does exist that the fact that the term was they feared the Lord uh, suggests an element of that there were some, even in the depths of Egypt, trusted in him, believing in his words, certainly, and acting accordingly. And I find it quite intriguing to think that among Pharaoh's servants, there maybe were some who heard the message and truly came to know the Lord. It's possible, but I can't confirm it. But moving on, verse 22 to 26. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky so the hail will fall over Egypt, on people and animals, on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashes down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all of the land of Egypt ever since it had become an independent nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the field, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. And the only place where the hail did not fall was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites lived. This verse simply describes the fulfilment of the very previous words that God had given Moses to say before Pharaoh. And what's intriguing is that only the land where the Israelites lived was the region spared from this dramatic hailstorm. The hail literally fell on the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. And that stark contrast is made in order to have an impact on the people. Not just the children of Egypt, not just the Egyptians, I'm sure, but it seems the children of Egypt would have been affected too. But it seems Pharaoh remains unaffected as usual. Let's continue verse 27. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to him. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Now I find this quite a remarkable and initially a confusing statement and admission by Pharaoh. But interestingly in preparing this study I discovered that there are seven men in the Bible who make this specific statement, I have sinned. Prior to the message I was unaware of this fact and that there were so few. And it's intriguing to note for a moment who they were and the various reasons behind their confessions. Pharaoh here, he confessed, but he confessed out of fear. We will see Achan confessing sin, but that was done with the motivation of thereby hoping to lessen his punishment. Balaam will acknowledge the speaking donkey incident. Saul expressed that he had sinned, but he referred to it as remorse, a regret that he had sinned. Job wholeheartedly admitted his guilt before the Lord and said he sinned. Judas confessed, but his sin came out of despair, and the prodigal son confessed and acknowledged his sin. And that's it. These individuals, and obviously just hearing that list, you'll straight straight away that this is not a list of the most spiritually eminent figures in the Bible, with the exception of Job and the prodigal son. You see Pharaoh, Achan, Balaam, and Judas, of course, were, well, at least you can say as they were far from exemplary. And in Saul's case, well, he's sort of debatable. He sits in the middle somewhere. The prodigal son and Job's confession of sins are the only ones that stand out as genuine. So what I feel is important to draw out of that is that it is important to remember that merely uttering the words, I have sinned, does not automatically indicate a true repentance. And clearly that's not what was going on here. The use of the term wicked also used here as applied to Pharaoh is a term that only implies to guilt under a criminal act of a law, signifying that he recognised sin but only in the sense that he had violated the law. So perhaps this only means Pharaoh is complying with the Lord's command because he recognises that he hasn't obeyed it and he didn't release the children of Israel so now he feels compelled to admit that at some degree. 
But let's find out what happens next and continue reading. Verse 28 to 30. Pray to the Lord, so this is Pharaoh saying to Moses, Pray to the Lord, for we've had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, When I've gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop there and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord. So Moses recognized where Pharaoh still was at this point. So Moses says, all right, I'm going to do it. And the reason I'm going to do it is so that you and everyone might know that the earth belongs to the Lord. In other words, by praying and bringing it to a cease, further evidence that God's behind this. I think clearly Moses still recognizes that Pharaoh still doesn't get this. And he doesn't also, it feels to me, anticipate that he re- he's ever going to get it. In other words, I think he recognizes Pharaoh's confession was rather superficial. And he also now is finally imbibing that message at the beginning that God gave him, that which was to press on, even though in the knowledge that Pharaoh would not respond. So let's see what happens next. Verses 31 to 35. The flax and the barley were destroyed in the land, since the barley had headed and the flax was in boom. The wheat and the spelt, however, were not destroyed because they could ripen later. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands towards the Lord and the thunder and the hail stopped and the rain no longer poured down in the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again and he and his officials hardened their hearts again. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. So not just Pharaoh this time, it's openly declared that the heart of Pharaoh was hard, along with his officials, we're told this time. So this now takes us to the eighth plague, and to chapter 10, verse 1. And the eighth plague is the plague of locusts. So reading verses 1 to 11, it says this. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him, and that you might tell in the hearing of your son and your sons the mighty things I have done in Egypt, and my signs for which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus saith the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. And they shall cover the face of the earth so that no one will be able to even see the ground. And they shall eat the residue of what is left, which remains to you from the hail, and they shall eat every tree which grows out of the field. They shall fill your houses and the houses of your servants and the houses of all Egyptians, which neither your father nor your father's fathers have ever seen anything like this since they were on the earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? So Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones that are going? And Moses said, We will go with our young and our old, and our sons and our daughters. 
With our flocks and herds we will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, The Lord had better be with you when I let you go, and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. Not so go now, you who are men, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desire. And then they were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. So here we go in Exodus 10, we see the continuation of the plagues falling upon Egypt. And the purpose behind all these plagues becomes evidence as each one unfolds that they serve as a means for the people, not just Pharaoh, but the people of, of Egypt and also the Israelites, that they should know that the Lord is behind all these things that's going on. So Moses and Aaron again confront Pharaoh, conveying the message from the Lord and urging him to humble himself and release the Israelites so they can serve God. However, Pharaoh remains obstinate. In response to Pharaoh's refusal, the eighth plague is now announced. And the Lord declares that swarms of locusts will come over the land, devastating everything that was left behind, the bits of stuff that weren't destroyed by the previous hailstorm. The locusts will consume all the remaining crops, even strip the trees and also infiltrate houses, leaving a total trail of destruction. The gravity of this plague is emphasised by mentioning the fact that Aegis will not have witnessed any devastation ever in the land before. And Moses this time just delivers the message to Pharaoh and then departs from his presence. Now it's worth noting that the occurrence of locust swarms like this one was not uncommon in places like Egypt. These swarms had the capability to, to strip an entire area of its vegetation, leaving behind a desolate landscape. But this, this swarm, Moses warns him, would cover an unprecedented geographical area like never seen before. And Pharaoh's stubbornness has brought upon Egypt this calamitous series of events. He makes that clear. So in verse 8, we see Pharaoh's advisors approach him, urging him to in fact let the Israelites go. They point out that the catastrophic impact that these plagues are having on Egypt already and suggest that releasing the Israelites is the only way to halt total destruction. And Moses and Aaron thereafter are summoned back again and Moses concedes, saying he'll allow the men to go and serve the Lord. But if you notice, he still insists that the women and children and animals leave behind. So here we see a pattern emerging, a pattern of manipulative negotiation and compromise beginning to emerge. Moses requests that everyone, including men, women, children and livestock, be allowed to go. Pharaoh, on the other hand, proposes a compromise in which only the men may leave. And this compromise represents the third attempt by Pharaoh to negotiate the terms of the children of Israel's departure. The first compromise, you may remember, was to allow them to sacrifice but remain within Egypt. The second was to let them leave but not go too far. And now the third is to permit only the men to go and leaving the children behind. This attitude also, I believe, parallels for us today how some believers seek to exist in the world. They try and blend into the culture instead of being distinctively set apart, being in the world but not being of the world, as it says in the New Testament. And Pharaoh's compromise here reflects a desire for worldly prosperity rather than choosing to prioritise spiritual obedience even when the presence of God is in his face in such a dramatic way. So despite Pharaoh's partial agreement, 
Moses and Aaron this time refuse to accept his terms. They understand that full obedience to the Lord's command is necessary. So the story continues in the next, in verse 12, and it unveils for us what will unfold next. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt, for the locusts that they may come upon the land of Egypt, and eat every herb of the land, everything that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night, and when it was moving, the east wind brought in the locusts. And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested on all of the territories of Egypt. They were very severe, more severe previously than any such plague of locusts had been known. Nor shall such be seen after them either. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened, and they ate every herb, every plant of the land, and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left behind. So afterwards there remained nothing green on the trees or the plants in the field throughout the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, please forgive my sins. Only this one thing I ask is that you entreat the Lord your God, that he may take away from me this death upon the land. So he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord, and the Lord turned a very strong west wind, which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children go. So this plague of locusts that falls upon the Egyptians is truly devastating. The sheer magnitude of this invasion is staggering to comprehend. Picture this. Experts that I've read into the background of this say plagues like this would mean 130 million locusts per square mile. Yes, you heard that right, friends. It's a mind-boggling number of locusts that swarmed over Egypt, telling us that it covered vast stretches of the land. Just imagine the enormity of the devastation. Hundreds of square miles are affected, and the land is left in ruins by this overwhelming horde of insects. Pharaoh again implies Moses and Aaron to intercede on his behalf, asking them to ask the Lord to remove the plague of locusts and spare them and the land from further destruction. Moses again agrees, and he departs from Moses' presence, and he does intercede before the Lord on Pharaoh's behalf. And the Lord responds, and this mighty wind sweeps across the land, carrying out every single locust out into the Red Sea, and no, not one single locust is seen to remain in the land. Yet despite witnessing both these divine interventions, the coming and the going of the locusts, Pharaoh's heart still remains hardened, and he still stubbornly refuses to let the Israelites go. So we've now witnessed two more plagues today, the hailstorm and the locust invasion, on top of the six plagues we saw earlier over the last couple of days. And remember, each plague serves a purpose and delivers a divine message. The purpose of the seventh plague was to showcase the Lord's supremacy to the entire world. But this time, in the eighth plague, it widens his target audience, not just to be the Egyptians, but he's also directing towards the children of Israel as well. And it is the children of Israel who are said to acknowledge that they can see the Lord is their God. So although the purpose and the situation 
remains the same. The recipients of this divine revelation is wider now. Both the Egyptians and the children of Israel are fully engaged in understanding. God of the children of Israel is the one behind all this. Okay, let's consider what is going on here. As I say, each one of these plagues, meticulously orchestrated, holds a unique purpose in revealing the power and authority of Almighty God. And I believe the message embedded in these plagues is intended both for the oppressor and the oppressed. That applies still today, but on that day it was for Pharaoh and the Israelite people. So bear that in mind, and we've got one more plague to cover today, and that's the ninth plague, and it starts in verse 21. The ninth plague, the plague of darkness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. The ninth plague is darkness. Notice that the other two plagues we looked at in the study proceeded with the morning, which said tomorrow it's coming. But in each of these set of plagues, the third plague on each of these three sets over these three days we studied, the last one is given without warning. And this one is darkness. And what is fascinating about this is it says also as that this is a darkness you could feel. Now, I've been to some pretty dark places in my time, but I don't think I've ever experienced a darkness you can feel. I was a bit of an amateur astronomer as a child, and I used to go and seek out dark places with my telescope, but I don't ever remember experiencing a darkness that I could feel. But by the way, have you noticed all these plagues have so far used forces of nature? The law is providentially using the natural things that exist in the world, things like locusts and hail, and now we have darkness. But what about this darkness? What's the significance of this one? What does this one mean? Well, this has huge significance because the main god, the major god of the Egyptian, was of course the sun god Ra. So this is a judgment against the major god, the sun god Ra. And that's probably why it says the darkness could be felt. So there would be a real spiritual dynamic for this among the Egyptian people. And the text continues, So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven, and there was a thick darkness in the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from the place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. And then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let the little ones also go with you. So you see, Pharaoh is still trying to compromise only he has to keep giving up more and more. First of all, it was, you can do it, but you've got to do it here in Egypt. Then it was, yeah, you can do it and go a little way, but don't go far. And now it's only the men can go. And now he's saying, okay, let the children go, but the animals must stay. But that's not going to work. Why isn't it going to work when he says that the animals are left me left behind? Why? Listen. Verse 25 to 27. But Moses said, You must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to our God. Our livestock also shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. But we must take some of them to serve the Lord. And even we do not know what we must serve and what we will have until we get there. They needed the animals for sacrifices. Moses understood they had to have the animals, so they had to go with them. And then it tells us, Verse 27, a familiar story, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. 
Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me, take heed to yourself, and see my face no more. For in the day you see my face, you shall die. So Moses said, You have spoken well, I will never see your face again. Now that turns out not to be quite true, because they will meet face to face at least one more time. But we'll get to that another day. But here we have the ninth plague, and the ninth plague was darkness. And Pharaoh finally appears to get what's going on here. So what do we learn from this? Well, to get it, but he still doesn't respond to it. So what can we learn from this? Well, this is the ninth plague. So obviously, when just stepping back and thinking about what it means to us and how we can apply it in our lives, we can see that the Lord is trying to teach this guy named Pharaoh, and I'm calling him out and identifying him as the absolute archetype, the personification of a stubborn sinner, because he's someone who doesn't spudge in spite of repeated warnings. Don't lose sight of the fact that in each of these three plagues, the Lord give a warning with the first two before acting unilaterally in judgment on the third. So the point is that even in the midst of judgment, the Lord was compassionate and there was mercy, the potential for mercy, wrapped up in the midst of judgment. And there's a pattern being established here and it will be repeated and we will see it repeated in the likes of the prayer of Habakkuk where he cries out, Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. So it seems to me that what the Lord does in this and the other sets of three plagues is that in his wrath he is still remembering mercy by giving Pharaoh repeated incremental warnings. Therefore one thing I believe we can learn from this passage today is the fact that the fact the Lord repeatedly gave Pharaoh warnings, this is the ninth time in fact he's warned him, so we likewise should repeatedly give people the message. I think another thing we can glean from this is the fact that we need to stay focused and stay true, taste true to what we believe and know and not compromise. Pharaoh said all along, I'll let you go, but then kept putting under these extra conditions. But again and again, Moses was seen that he wasn't willing to compromise. Not on the core things anyway. So one of the things I think we can learn is to stay focused on what our goal is and don't lose sight of the fact of what this is all about. Now in this case here, the goal is, the end result, is the people of God leaving Egypt so they can go and worship and serve the Lord. In our case today, it is that we can be conformed to the image of Christ by escaping out of Egypt, out of the temptations of the world, and we too worshipping and serving the Lord. Moses doesn't lose focus, so we too should stay focused on that also. But the other thing I think we need to note in all this is, and I think I wish to end with this today, is that when you're dealing with a stubborn person, when you're dealing with a stubborn stubborn sinner, the temptation is always to lose patience. The temptation might even be to get a little bit aggravated. But the point is here, the Lord was compassionate with Pharaoh, compassionate even in his judgment. In Mark chapter 10, we hear a story of a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, that's an interesting question, but why did you call me good? There's only one good and that's God. And that's translated as meaning, yeah, you've come before me and asked these questions, but by the way you're framing it, are you recognizing that I'm God? Well, the rich young ruler didn't answer. So the Lord said to him, it seems that you know the commandments well. 
But note that Jesus then didn't tell him to keep those commandments. Instead, he directed them, yes, to consider the law, but only as a way to show him, that guy, that he's a sinner and that they should point that out to him and know that he's in need of being released from the rule of the law. So he says, yeah, you know the commandments, you know that much. And the rich young ruler did know the commandments. In fact, this guy rattled off six of the Ten Commandments straight away when he met Jesus. So this guy is an example of the classic stubborn sinner in the New Testament because he said, yeah, I know all these commandments and I've kept them from my youth. But every time I read this passage of the rich young Euler and I think, who are you trying to kid? Do you expect me to believe that you've reached the age you did and you never once disobeyed your parents, even as a child? Do you mean to tell me that you always put the Lord first in every decision that you made because that was the requirement of the law? And do you know what this passage says in Mark 23? Do you know what it says how Jesus responds? It says this, the Lord loved him. The Lord had compassion on him and said, yes, but you lack one thing. Go sell everything and give it to the poor. That's your problem, he says. The problem is you're trusting in your riches to get you in. And because of that, you need to get rid of those riches because ironically, they're the very thing that's keeping you out. But what struck me in that is beyond the teaching is the fact that it's underpinned by the statement the fact that the Lord looked upon him and he loved him he had compassion on him even at the point of this very particular personal word of judgment fell upon that rich young man that day the Lord had compassion on him even in his stubbornness the Lord always shows compassion that's the template being established here that's always showing compassion even in the opportunities given to Pharaoh even as he's passing judgment on him as he goes along with these plagues. The special spiritual truth of this passage, I believe, I submit to you, is that we too need to be patient and we too need to have compassion upon even the most stubborn of people, the most stubborn of sinners. Why? Because the Lord was compassionate to us when we too existed in that place of stubbornness, that same place of unforgiveness, that Pharaoh and the rich young ruler once sat. I hope we can live that and understand that and apply it in our lives. Okay, people, that's it for today. Thank you again for joining me so much. My name is Jeremy McCandless, and you've been listening to the Bible Project Daily Podcast, the purpose of which is to enable us to spend time together, not just reading the Word of God, but studying the Word of God, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the whole Bible, if the Lord gives me enough years to do that. Now, these podcasts are hosted on the bibleproject.buzzsprout.com, but you can subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts from. But with most podcast platforms not allowing active links, enabling you to click through to other places, if you want to have access to the other free teaching resources that I make, always freely available, then you can do that by going to the bibleproject.buzzsprout website, and that where you'll find active links to all the places that I put all my material. Places like LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube and others. 
And you'll also find a Patreon page there where you can, if you feel called by God, support this ministry. I couldn't be making this ministry available freely in so many places without the support of those wonderful people who've decided to become patrons of my work. So thank you to them, but thank you to you also just for the very fact that you've joined us here today. One thing you can do as well is if you're finding this teaching helpful and encouraging, then review it. That is one of the ways that people who are trawling through a sea of choices when they click around the internet, in a sense, if you're finding it valuable, you're authenticating my ministry so that other people will hopefully uh, be drawn to make the same decision that you've made, which is allow the study of the Bible to be part of your life. So with that said, that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining me. And I do trust I'll see you back here tomorrow or whatever day it is for you because you can do this at whatever pace suits you as we work together through the Bible on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye now.